Last week, we started through the gates. Now, there are 10 gates listed in Nehemiah, and I believe, and I'm not alone in this, a lot of theologians believe that they're symbolic of the Christian walk of faith. And so we, we, we handled two of them last week. Uh, I didn't set a record for longest sermon, but it was up there. Uh, those of you who are here, my apologies for that. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think, we're only going to do one gate today, so we, we won't push it quite as far. But So I, I want to do that. But before I get to Nehemiah, I want to go back and touch on something that I mentioned a couple weeks ago. So we're talking about the Lord's Prayer and how that also is kind of a, a pattern prayer. It's an outline of how we're supposed to pray. But I kind of skipped over one of the most important parts of the Lord's Prayer, and I want to touch on it today. To, to really express the revolutionary theology of Jesus Christ. He, he kind of turned everything upside down and put it on his head. So let me set this for you. What happened was Jesus every morning would go off alone and he'd pray and he'd, he'd be, you know, just connecting to his father and he'd come back and the disciples knew what he, were, what he was doing, but they didn't know how to do it. That might seem silly to us, but you have to understand this was very unusual that he was a rabbi who prayed in private. In those days, and even somewhat to this day, rabbis pray in public. Uh, they make a pretty big deal about their prayer. They, they, they stand before, and they, they yell out, and they scream, and, and they, they, make, you know, they sing a little bit of it, and it's a big deal. Uh, and uh, so that's what they're used to rabbis doing. And so here's Jesus off on his own by himself quietly praying. And, and when Jesus comes back, he says, well, this is how you should do it. You shouldn't be doing it for the glory of men, but for the, for the communion with God. And the disciples say, well, teach us how to pray, which is great. I love when the disciples ask the question, I would have asked if I were there. Well, teach me how to do this. And so he does. So they kind of form a little group. I don't think they held hands, you know, but maybe they did. And they kind of get there. And he says, here's how you pray. And he starts showing them or telling them how to pray. And we know it as the Our Father Prayer or the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but he starts out, and when he starts it out, the disciples must have, like, looked up at each other. Because... You, you miss that because, you know, when we read, we kind of zip through it. But uh, he does something amazing here because up until this moment, Jews always prayed a certain way, and all their prayers started the same way. First of all, they prayed in ancient Hebrew, which is like us praying in King James, you know, very similar to that. But they always started the same way, a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So all the prayers started because they wanted two things. First, they wanted to declare which God they're talking to because in those days people prayed to a lot of gods. And they also wanted to claim why God should listen to their prayer. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, I have a right to pray to you, and you should hear my prayer. That's how all the prayers started. Jesus does something completely different. In fact, uh, what scholars have discovered is that he actually prayed not in Old Hebrew or even modern Hebrew. He prayed in, in a language called Aramaic, which would have been like the common tongue of the day. So like the street, the street language almost, and not that bad, but you know it was a common tongue, uh, it's kind of a mishmash of a bunch of languages, and so that right there blows things away because he's already opening up the idea that God is for more than just the descendants of Abraham. So right there, and then he uses a word that has never been used before, Abba. Now Abba isn't our Father, which is how we translate it. It's actually kind of more like Hey Dad, or Daddy. You could also use it for daddy. Abba is what a child says to their father when they run to them, like a little baby running, holding up their hands, you know, daddy, daddy. What's well, Abba, Abba in, in Aramaic? And so what he's saying is uh, God isn't this distant, mean, judgmental father. He is your dad. You know, he's your dad. And so right then, everything changed for the disciples. They started realizing, boy, everything we understand about God is wrong, and Jesus is going to take us into this. And that's important for us as we walk into this next gate. 
because what we understand is that what we're talking to and what we're ta who we're talking about is something that's given to us by dad. It's not given to us by a lawmaker who wants to judge us. It's actually given to us by dad. And so let me, let me kind of give you a story of dad. Those of you who have great dads, you know, it's easy for you to kind of make the jump here. But, but I know that when I speak, I speak to some people who didn't have, maybe didn't have any father or didn't have a very good uh, Christian father. And so let me talk to you about dad. I, I'm, I don't always nail it, uh, but uh, there is a, a time that I kind of think about being a dad. I mean, of course, I am a dad. Uh, but when Emily was very young, and I've told this story before, she uh, had some issues with asthma. And she, it would be triggered, and it was really bad. In fact, the first time we discovered it, we were here. She was about 12 months old, and we were here visiting. We lived in Texas then, and we came visiting, and we ended up in Children's Hospital uh, for three days, which is not where you want to spend Christmas vacation. I mean, lovely people there, but you don't want to spend Christmas vacation, see? In, in children's hospital, uh, so right there. But um, so so that that was a very difficult time to get through. And after that, we were afraid because every doctor was afraid. You pick up the fear of doctors when you have a baby who gets pneumonia, which is what she had in both lungs. That's really especially terrifying to me. I almost died from that when I was about that age. Uh, then you you're always worried about that. They're susceptible to picking it up again. And she'd get a sniffle, and we get worried. If it settled in her chest at all, boy, it was straight to the doctor with her because they told us. You, know, you can't mess around with this. Uh, so anyway, about a, oh, about a year later, she was about two, I was at work. I'd left that morning, and I, was, I wasn't married to my good wife. I was married to my first wife. And, um, but she called me, and she says, uh, I'm taking Emily into the doctor because, you know, I saw she had a sniffle. And I said, okay, you know, right. And so she took him in and her in, and then I got a phone call a little bit later, and my wife was panicked. She said, um, they're going to admit her to the hospital again. Like, oh, man, it's like your heart sinks. Like, not again. What's, I said, she's sounding worse? She's not, she's about the same as when you left. I thought, well, that didn't sound like pneumonia. Like, I'm a doctor. But, you know, we've been through this before. We've been through a couple bouts of pneumonia. So well, that didn't sound like pneumonia to me. And she goes, well, they're, they're making me, you know, check her in. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Tell them nothing happens till I get there. So I break some speed limit laws. I blow over to the hospital. And I get there. And already the doctor doesn't like me because he was told he couldn't do anything until the dad gets there. So we're not going to hit it off. But as soon as I walked in the door, now Emily, who's only, like said two, and she doesn't really know what's going on, but she can sense what's going on. And she has a very healthy fear of hospitals already. Uh, she sees me, her little arms go up, you know, dad, dad. And so I come and I pick her up, you know, she puts her little arms around me and hugs me real tight. I said, don't worry, daddy's going to take care of this. I hand her back, I go talk to the doctor, you know, and he's like, you know, Mr. Grice, your, your child is very sick, we need to admit her. I said, right, what was her oxygen level when she got here? And that surprised him, you know. And the only reason I know this stuff, and you parents have been through sickness, you know, you pick up stuff, like, right, real fast. Like, I've met some parents of cancer patients that can tell you, you know, dosages and, and everything. And so I said, what was, her, what was her oxygen level? And he was a little bit surprised. He told me, I said, then you gave her an albuterol treatment, right? Then what was it after that? And now he's really looking at me kind of funny, you know, like, oh, who are you? And so um, we start talking a little bit. I said, well, what are you going to do? You're just going to kind of put her on round-the-clock albuterol treatments, right? He says, yes, we're going to care for her in the hospital. I said, did you know that we have a home albuterol nebulizer? Well, we can, we can give her treatments ourselves. In fact, we've done it many times. We have a sterile room, and we have the ability to sterilize everything, and we can do that. He says, well, but you won't be able to give her the shots that we're going to give her. I said, well, you're going to give her prednisone, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, you've got my crib sheet. He says, yeah. I said, well, can't you give that to her orally? He says, ah, baby will never take prednisone. It's a bitter medicine. I can't get adults to take it. I said, oh, I'll get her to take it. Give it to me. 
So he went and got it, one of those little tiny, you know, spoons that looks like a shot glass, you know. And I walked over to Emily, she was two years old, and I said, Emily, this is going to taste really, really bad, but you need to take it so we can go home. And she just knocked it back like it was Jack Daniels, you know, <laughs> boom. And, you know, let's get out of here. And so we left, you know, and so I'm carrying her with me, and she's hugging me, you know. And I didn't think I did anything amazing. I did what daddies do, right? There's this big problem, and daddy steps in. And when you're a little kid, you look for your daddy to step in and make everything go away, right? That's what you look to your daddy for. Uh, that was nothing amazing. That's just what daddies do. Number one and two jobs of a dad is to provide and protect. You know, that's, that's our job. Fast forward a year. By this time, we have found a really great pul pulmonary doctor, Dr. Leone. He's been helpful helping us to find out what the triggers were and helping us get to the point where we strengthen her so she doesn't have these bouts. And uh, he had written a prescription for a test that uh, I had looked at and, and called up to find out about it. It was a blood test. Well, Emily developed a pretty good fear of hospital. She developed a terror of needles. And she was sick at the time. I thought, there's no way I'm getting this test done. You know, not now. Wait until she gets better. Well, she got better, and I didn't do it because that's what I do sometimes. And so um, anyway, uh, so he, he, um, he's, next time I'm in visiting, you know, for well checkup, he's looking through. And he says, you didn't get the test done. And I told him, no, and I start giving him some, you know, lame excuse, and he stops me. You know? I really like this doctor. It's one of my favorite doctors of all time. He comes right up to me. He looks me in the eye. He's shorter than me, but he looks me right in the eye. He says, I'm going to tell you something. I really care about Emily, and I really like you. But if you don't do what I tell you as a doctor, I can't be your doctor. Now, I've told you to do this test because she has some symptoms of a rare disease. If we find it now, she stands a chance. If you put this off and we find it later, she's in trouble. So you need to do it, or I can't be your doctor. I said, all right, I'm not going to let that happen. I'll take care of it. Right? So I made the appointment. I take Emily there. We went to this blood place, you know, these Dracula places, and the bad paneling and the smell, you know. And so she gets in there. I can tell she's nervous already, you know. She kind of knows this isn't normal. We're not going to the ice cream shop, Dad, huh? You know. And I said, it's okay. They're going to run a test. You know, sometimes you always lie to your kids in these situations. They're going to run a test. It is a test, but, you know, I don't tell her about the needle. And a little bit later, this really friendly woman comes out to the nurse, you know, nurse today, says, hey, Emily, you know, and she looks at it. I said, go ahead. And so Emily kind of scared, but she goes there, and she goes back there and shuts the door and says, oh, thank God, you know, this will be over soon. And then I hear Emily lay out a blood-curling scream, you know, and you always know, parents, you know when it's your kid's scream. We can tell screams different. And I said, oh, God, you know, please be with her, and then, you know, I'm praying for her, praying for her. The door opens up, and that same woman pokes her hand and says, Mr. Grice, could you come here? And I, oh, is it a problem? Well, there is a problem. Um, she's shaking so badly, we can't get the needle in her. I thought, oh, my God, did you jab her? She says, no, we can't even, like, find it. You know, she's moving, and we can't do it. We need you to help. What that meant by help is they need me to hold her down. Okay? The last thing I wanted to be was that dad, right? And so I walk in, and, and Emily sees me. Of course, she comes to me because, oh, well, thank God, you know, Santa, Daddy's going to make everything go away, right? Well, I didn't. I sat down in the same seat she was in, and I looked at her, and I said, Emily, you're not going to like this. But we have to do it. And I turned her around, I put her down, and I used one arm to hold her against my chest. I took the other two hands and held that little arm down against the, the, you know, the table there so they could put that needle in her while she screamed in my ear, bloody murder. Because sometimes that's what dads do. And my friends, welcome now to our next gate. The next gate is the old gate. The old gate is where we meet God's law and God's justice. I'm going to describe it to you as DMI describes it, and we've been walking through this a little bit, and I kind of stop on a couple of points, not all of them, because reading all the names and things is like watching somebody eat. I get that, but um, the thing that's interesting is if you remember the first gate, the first gate was the, sh the, the sheep gate, 
And that was done by the priests, as it should be, because the sheep gets where we hear the call of God. The next gate was the fish gate, which is a very interesting kind of smelly gate, but it's an important gate because it's where God shows his power in your life. And Nehemiah took mention of the fact that the leaders of the area didn't help with that. And I believe that's because symbolically the fish gate is something you're going to do with Jesus personally. It's a very personal thing, and so it's not. And I want you to see who's involved in the old gate. So he starts off by repairing the old gate, and they laid its beams. They hung its door with bolts and bars. And he goes down through who makes them and all the different people that make them. But notice that the repairs were even for the official seat of the governor. So they're actually kind of, because this is a, the, the gate of law, right? And then you see these different people. The goldsmiths are part of it. And next to them, one of the perfumers is like, imagine that. You're a perfumer and the gate maker. It's kind of like being a baker and a gate maker, right? And it's like, you know, yes, I do perfume. I also make gates. Made repairs. We stored it as far as the broad wall. Next to them, we see the official of half the district of Jerusalem makes the repairs. And this is very interesting because next to the son of, of those people who make it, we see daughters actually take place and uh, take part in, in repairing this gate. That's unusual for this kind of work. Women usually didn't do it in that culture. But we actually see daughters coming up and officials, and they're all part of this. And they're making this gate because the old gate's a gate everybody goes through. I need you to know that. Everybody goes through. In fact, uh, the old gate's mentioned a couple times in the Bible. I spoke about it, uh, I don't know, about a month ago when we were speaking of Ruth. We did a series on Ruth. When, when Boaz confronts the man who should have redeemed the property, his, his relative, uh, on, on behalf of Ruth, he is sitting at the old gate. And what he's doing, is he's actually declaring the law, you should have done this, but since you didn't, I will if you'll let me. And that's what he did. He was declaring the law, those of you who are here for the Ruth, the, the Ruth series. In uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah says this, stand by the way, see and ask of the ancient paths, it could also be translated old paths, which lead to the old gate, where the good way is and walk in it. This is God calling out to Israel through, through Jeremiah the prophet, you will find rest for your souls, but they said we will not walk in it because God's gate is where God's, the old gate is where God's justice is given. Now, when you hear that God's going to be there, it's nice, but when you hear that God's there with his law and his justice, then people kind of have a different reaction to it. You know, usually, go, oh, you know, we're going to go to the old gate. It's the gate of the law. You know, people's reaction is more like, you know, this. Yes, that's where I'm going. No, you mustn't go there. No, you mustn't go there. Of all places, stay away from there. You don't want any parts with there. That's where the law is. This is the part of Christianity that people don't like. You know, I don't, that's what I've heard about. I heard about you Christians and your rules. I don't want any parts of that. Listen, there's a reason for the order of the gates. I said this before. If you have not heard the Savior's call, if you have not seen God's work in your life, there's no way that you're ever going to sit there and stand for God's law. And I think one of the biggest problems Christians have is that we try to take them through the old gate before they've been to the shepherd gate. They, they need to go through the shepherd gate. They need to hear Jesus' voice. They need to see God's power in their life before we start hitting them with God's law. They're never going to, they're never going to submit to it otherwise. And I, I, I know I'm friends with some of you on Facebook. I see the arguments you're getting in with your non-believer friends. And man, we're bringing out the law and we're beating people up with the law. And this is why you're wrong. This is why I'm right. I've got God's word on this. And you may be entirely right in what you're saying, but they are rejecting every word you say because if you've never heard the shepherd's call and you've never seen the Lord's tender mercies, you are never going to submit to your father's instruction. You're just not going to do it. You're wasting your time. If, if you're wondering why it's not hitting, it's because they don't believe any of this stuff. And you're trying to tell them they should follow rules from a God they don't know. 
Of course they're not going to do it. I don't know where this started, to be honest with you, but it seems to be the, the, the main method of, 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 of uh, missionary work today in America. I mean, it's crazy. There actually was, there's a whole line of, of preaching about this. You may have heard of it. It's called Hellfire and Brimstone. You know, it's a very popular sermon methodology, Hellfire and Brimstone. Um, I think it used to work better back in the 1400s to 1800s when people could die suddenly at any moment. And your life expectancy was 40 or 50 years. You, know, you talk to some people who have had relatives working the steel mills here, you'll hear horrible stories of deaths that took place in the steel mills around here or the railroad tracks or all kinds of things. People could die suddenly. An illness could come by and take you. People are kind of worried about their mortality. So you come by and say, oh, by the way, once you die, it's going to get worse. They're interested. You know, I want to hear about this. But I don't think it works today. If you tell a 20-year-old that uh, you know, when they die, they're going to go to heaven or hell, you're talking about something they don't think is going to happen for 60 years. That might as well be never in a 20-year-old's mind. You know? Do you know that old's 20 years older than you are, by the way, statistically? If you ever know, oh, what's old? Take your age, add 20 years to it. That's what you think old is. Right? So when you're talking to a 20-year-old and you're talking about 80, it's like, you know, that's like forever from now. I don't, I don't even, I can't even comprehend it, you know. A lot of 20-year-olds I know can't comprehend past lunch. So, you know, it's like there's no way you're going to, it doesn't work. I'm just telling you, it doesn't work. And it's not supposed to work, I don't think. We're supposed to let them hear the call. And you can say, well, I don't know, John the Baptist kind of was that kind of a guy. He'd repent and be baptized. Yes, but he didn't go into the city. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. The people were drawn to him by the shepherd's voice. Once you're drawn to God, then you'll hear it. But if not, you won't. And that's what we have to understand, that we have to understand that we are, we are supposed to submit to somebody we know's instruction. If we don't, they're never going to have the moral authority in our lives. They may have the legal authority, but not the moral authority. The society has legal authority on you. You know, that judge doesn't know you, but they, but they have the legal power to pass judgment. But it doesn't feel the same as someone with moral authority. And we have to understand that's what we're going to. And we have to understand also this is still a choice. We have this choice. Jesus Christ says every day, pick up your cross and follow me. You know, every day we're supposed to be submitting to the law. We think what that means is, well, God's telling us every day, you have a choice between choosing good or evil. But that's not what Jesus is saying. I don't believe. I think every day Jesus is saying, you have a choice between good and best. See, that's the choice. Not between good and evil. It's between good and best. Because the devil, the devil never gives you something bad. <laughs> you know, the choice is always between best, which is God's word, or good. That's the choice. And the problem is if you choose good, you know what tomorrow's choice is? It's between that good and not quite as good. And before very long is where you end up choice, choosing between not very good and evil. That's how, that's how the devil works. He doesn't start out with evil. I think most people can choose between good and evil. It's hard sometimes to choose between good and best. That's what God's calling us to do. He says, I have the best plan for your life. Not a good plan. I have the best plan. It's like the guy stands in front of his doctor, and the doctor says, you know, he's in bad health. The guy says, well, you know, what should I do? And the doctor says, well, the best thing for you to do is stop eating fatty foods, stop smoking, stop drinking. The guy says, I don't deserve the best. What's the second best? You know, this is kind of what we do with God, right? We come up to him, and, and we say, I don't deserve the best. What's the second best? How can I? No, it's, it's, that's what it is. But the reason why it's important we understand that he's our dad giving us this is because if we truly believe that and we have a relationship with him, then we can bear some of the things that don't seem as good to us. When, when, we, when we had that moment that happened there in that blood-sucking place with, with Emily, I thought she was going to get up and run for me when it was over. I mean, I really did. I thought I betrayed her. <laughs> I'm holding her down. I'm part of the problem right now, right? I'm not the, I'm not the solution. When it was all over and I stuck that little 
ball on her, you know, that little hot ball, and they put a piece of tape over it. Um, and, and I let her go, you know. She turned around, and she wrapped her arms around me and hugged me. Because even though she did not like anything that happened there, she still trusted me as her father, that there was a reason why I did that. If you don't have that kind of a thing with your child, then when you do things, they're going to not like it very much. Um, but because I had spent the time with her in all of the things, I'd been with her through her sickness, that we, that we, have, a, we have an idea that the parent is the moral and legal authority in their lives. If they're not, by the way, if you're not the moral and legal authority in your children's life, you'll know. Because governs, parents who govern only legal, legally will cause wrath or discouragement in their children. So you can kind of watch how your children are reacting, and it can let you know how you're doing on this. Because you have a legal right. You know, your children are small, and Emily was small. She couldn't stop me, and I had the right to do what I did to her. But that was my legal right. The reason she hugged me later is because it was my moral right, and she trusted me. Right? If you're not, then the Bible tells us that children have one or two reactions to it. Either they're going to end up being angry with you and have wrath in them, and I see a lot of young, angry kids, or they're going to be discouraged. And in Paul, in Ephesians, he says this, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and your father. We love to quote that to our kids. It's a fun scripture to quote to them. Right? We know this, but almost every parent knows this scripture. Um, and he goes on to mention it's the first commandment that actually has a promise but it then goes on, he has this, you know, all the things have this little other caveat there. You'll see this a lot in the scripture. You fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. If you are not morally involved in their life at all, like some absentee fathers are, uh, and they come in and they, they administer justice, then the ch children get angry with them. And some of you went through that with your dad. And he was never there. He was working or out with his friends or whatever else, but boy, he'd be the one. Wait till your dad gets home. He'd be the one to come home and spank you. You know, it was like... Who are you? You know, he had a legal right to do, but not the moral right, and that caused anger. The other thing that Paul tells us in Colossians is fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And this is the other thing I see, kind of the dead eyes in the kid, because they know they're too small. They can't, you know, I'll just put up with it. I can't do anything about it, right? But again, no moral authority. You're going to have one of these two choices. Not that kids are perfect. Don't get me wrong. Kids, you know, sinful too, and sometimes they react wrongly. But if you see a pattern, it's very possible that you're creating the pattern. God has a moral right and a legal right in our lives because he's our dad. And he's not, you know, we, we kind of look at him as a judge. Judges have legal right, but he's also our dad. He has the moral right. And when you love the Lord the way he loves you, you will want to obey his commands for two reasons. One is you'll recognize that he gave these to you for a purpose. And that life is better with them than without them. That's, that's one reason. The other reason is, I just want to make your dad proud. I mean, do you want God to be proud of you? I remember um, Mike Webster, center of the, of the Steelers who passed away. Uh, I heard somebody once interview him on a radio show, and they asked him what it was like to be a four-time Super Bowl champion. And he said, I, I don't care about any of that. All I care about is when I die, God says, well done, faithful servant. And that's the heart of somebody who really understands that God's their dad. And, and that's if we get there, the laws not only make sense, but where they don't make sense, we're still okay with them because we trust our dad's doing what's best for us, even if we don't necessarily like it. Uh, and we, we see this in, in the Psalms. I love this. <laughs> Psalm 119, longest Psalm in the Bible. Uh, this actually shows up many times. I will trust in your word. I have hope in your ordinances. Those are your laws, your rules. 
and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Precepts are things that God teaches and laws. Well, that doesn't even seem the same, does it? I walk in liberty because I follow your law. Isn't the one who walks in liberty the one who's scoffed at the law and left the law? He says, no, I walk in liberty because I follow your law. I will speak of your testimonies before kings. I won't be ashamed. I'm not afraid of God to tell people I follow God's law. I'm not ashamed of it. He said, I'm not at all. I'll delight myself in your commandments. I love them. And I will meditate on your statutes. God's law. Do we love it? Or do you just come put up with it? If you're just putting up with it, let me tell you something. You may tell me, and I may agree with you, that your father, your earthly father, violated his moral boundaries with you. Like, I hear stories. I see it. I see parents swearing at their children for swearing. You know, it's like crazy, you know, <laughs> or else, or I saw this one, that, this one, this, these two brothers, you know, and his brother hits his other brother, you know, gets something back off him, and the father says, come here, come here. He says, we don't hit people, and smacks him in the head. I was like, you know, this is kind of like violating the moral law, right? Your children see this. So if, if you know, you may convince me that your earthly father violated the moral law and only had legal authority on it, but don't tell me your heavenly father did. Don't tell me that. Don't tell me that the God who came here to save you and died for you violated moral law. He has a right in your life, both from a legal standpoint and a moral standpoint. And that's who he is. So um, I'm going to do this really, really quickly, but I want to show you real fast uh, the Ten Commandments. <laughs> this is like a sermon series. I'm going to do it in like five minutes, I promise. But, <laughs> Uh, I have them color-coded here because there's actually a shift that happens in the Ten Commandments. I want to show you. This was the first law, really, that God gave the Israelites. Now, his law predates this. You'll see law giving all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. But he gives the lawgiver, Moses, the Ten Commandments. We all kind of know the Ten Commandments. But I want to show you that the Ten Commandments are laid out in a certain way. Everything God does, he does for a purpose. Uh, so, no other God before me uh, is the very first one. This is almost like Duh, you know, well, well, who would do that? Well, we do that. What he's saying is that, that I'm the one, and the reason he tells him, and I'll show you the scripture for this, uh, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Because I did this for you, you'll have no other gods before me. But it's more than that. It's, I'm the only one who could do this for you. You understand, there's other gods put you into bondage. I'm the one who took you out of bondage. It only makes sense that I'm the only God that you should serve. It, it does make sense. But he's, he's, he's giving them both a moral and a legal reason for it. You know, I'm the one who got you out of bondage. Uh, I'm the one who gave you your freedom. So that's the one. And then he comes back and he says, no graven images or no images, no idols, uh, some different translations use. He says, you will have no idols. Now, I want you to catch this. The first time he says, all these other gods that are supposedly religious, you can't have any of them. It's kind of a spiritual realm. You can't serve any other spirit but mine. Right? You can't serve it. But now he's getting more specific because he's coming back and he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, the likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or the water. Nothing you can see, touch, or feel will you serve. Boy, this is hard because that includes money. That also, by the way, includes your family. Because there's some people who put family above God. It's basically saying everything on the earth, anything you can see, that can't be your God either. But he's, he's setting up a relationship here. He says, this is the relationship we have. And then finally he says something that you wouldn't think that fits there. But he says, also, do not use God's name in vain. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
There's only two reasons to use God's name. And by the way, God is not his name. God's his title. That's how come you can have other gods. There's only one Jehovah. There's only two reasons to use God's name. Praise and prayer. That's it. If you're using God's name for any other purpose, you're taking it in vain. I hear a lot of people taking God's name in vain when they're trying to do their will in God's name. They're doing what they want to do, and they're trying to say, God said this, and God said no such thing. They are not going to be held blameless in the final day. But that first section here was all about our relationship with God. Now watch this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is an interesting one because we're shifting a little bit, but it's still about a relationship. This is, a, this is a, a scripture that actually I had a great deal of trouble with when we first started Spirit Chapel. Not that I didn't believe it, but because I had a very hard time finding a Sabbath. You know, I have a, I have a full-time job, folks. You know, I, I do this on the side. You know, I don't get paid for this. As I always say, you don't like the sermon, you get what you pay for. You know, but, um, so I, I, I have a full-time job that I do. And on top of that, you know, this church is really a full-time job. Who knew? You know, I didn't know. But it turns out it's a full-time job, too. And so it's sometimes very difficult. When we first started, we went like the first year and a half, seven days a week, just straight. But I thought it was okay because I was doing God's work. It's not okay with God, by the way, for us to break his commandment. And I was, I was telling Victoria once, I said, man, you know, this is really weird. Because if I had a counsel with somebody, which I would find time to do, and they came in, and they sat across from me, and they described my life to me. And they said, I'm working real hard, and I'm doing, I'm doing God's work, and I'm working seven days a week, and I'm exhausted. My wife and I are fighting all the time, and I'm, I'm worn out. I'm tired. I'm getting sick a lot more, and all this stuff. If they had told me all that, you know what I would have told them? I would have said, well, and I would take them to the Ten Commandments, and I would have said, uh, what this thing here about not murdering? What do you think about that? And they would have told me, well, I couldn't murder anybody. What about uh, committing adultery? No, no, I would never do such a thing. How about stealing? No, I know better. So why do you think it's not okay to break these commandments, but it's okay to break that commandment? Why is that okay? How, how come it's okay to break this commandment? By the way, these are in order of importance, just so you know. This is, this, is, this, is, this is the commandment. By the way, God's giving to you for you. This is for you. He's doing this because you need a day. You need it. God said, I made you, I know how you're made, and you need a day off. And I was telling Victoria that, I said, I know what I would say, I just don't know how to do it. And that's when we canceled the Sunday evening service. So when I take this headset off, just so you know, I'm done. And I try real hard not to work until whatever time I finish the next day. This is my Sabbath, it starts when this headset comes off. And I had to get it. And I, I know a lot of people would love that Sunday evening service, but it, you know, just can't. God will never ask you to, to do anything that breaks your relationship with it. The most important thing in the commandments is the first five, which are all about your relationship with him. Believe it or not, relationship with him and with each other. Because God created us in his image. He created us in the image of a God that has community and communion with each other. Three, God, three parts of the Trinity. We've got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're in perfect, perfect communion. They were all there at the beginning. And we're created in the image of that. We were created for community. Those people say, well, I don't need anybody. You're wrong, because God tells you you do. God created us for community. And these first five are all about establishing the community, both with our Heavenly Father and with our family, which is the first community he gives us, our family, which is why the next commandment, of course, is honor your parents. And knowing, probably, that that was going to be a big problem for people, that's the one he comes back and he actually gives us a, pro a promise with. <laughs> Honoring your parents is hard, I know. So let me give you a promise with that one. If you do that, uh, you're going to live a long life. I will give you more life if you honor your parents. So, and I know 
Well, I know, I know. Sometimes it's hard to honor your parents. I get it. A lot of you come from non-Christian homes. Um, but I, but I, I, this isn't about that. I'm not preaching about that today. It's probably, probably worth talking about. But um, The next one's actually almost gimmies to some degree, but they are talking about that we kind of start moving out of this, this relationship with God into relationship with our community at large. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, which is different than lying, um, by the way. That's actually when you, when you deliberately say something about somebody else to hurt them, which is a little bit different than just not lying. And do not covet. These things all break down a relationship, in, in, in their case, the, the society of Israelites, right? But there's a shift that happens in the commandments. And this is the way God sets this all up. It's all well thought out. God's not, uh, not just throwing stuff out. And I, I've had people say, why in the world, if God gives us only 10 commandments, he wastes the first three on him? <laughs> well, because the most important thing in your life is your relationship with your Heavenly Father. If you don't have that, the rest of it doesn't matter. If you do have that, eventually the rest of it's going to fall in the line. Because if you're walking with the Lord, eventually he'll correct you. Because eventually everybody walks through the old gate. Where God comes and he talks to them about that. Uh, but God's law is not designed to prevent God's law is designed to protect. And you know, we tell our kids this all the time. You've heard me say this before. There's two ways you learn in life. You learn by experience or you learn by instruction. It is my hope and desire that my kids can always learn by instruction because I've been through the experience part and it's not fun. You know, Ben, ben Franklin said, experience may be a hard road, but a fool learns by no other. You know, I don't want to raise fools. I want them to take my, my word for it. You don't want to do that. You know, it frustrates me sometimes. My kids say, well, you did that when you were, yeah, that's what I'm telling you not to. You, know, you understand. <laughs> I don't look back on those days with fondness. I, I, don't, I don't like that at all. It's not what I'm trying to do. Um, so, so God's law is to protect first your relationship with your father. Anytime, God, anytime you think God is calling you away from your relationship with him, it's a lie. Anytime God is calling you away from your relationship with him, and I don't care what you think you're doing, it's a lie. He will never take you away from him. He'll never send you away from him. He wants you closer to him, not further away. Uh, God's law's secondary purpose is to protect the community. By the way, the society goes the other way around. They protect the society first and you, and you, you next. Right? So um, the old gate, though, is not a barrier to your happiness. A lot of people think it is, and that's why they don't want to become Christians. There's just a bunch of rules. I'm going to fall a bunch of rules. It's not a barrier to your happiness. God's law is not to prevent you from, from experiencing a full life. It, it, it's exactly opposite of that, right? So if, if you're looking at God's law as something that I hate and resent, go back and check the sheep gate again because you don't have a relationship with the Lord you should have yet. Go back and, and, and start praying to him because I'm having a hard time following your law, God. And, and, and what's wrong with our relationship? Where, where have I gone off? It wasn't God. It's, you know, where did I go off? And, and let him work with you back through the fish gate again and then come back to this, because there's a reason why you're rebelling, and it's not God. We have to understand God's, the old gate, God's law, is not a barrier to us or a path to happiness. It's a safe harbor around the storm that is raging around you. It's not to prevent you from anything. It's to protect you from everything. That's why God gives us his law. That's why David says, I have liberty because I'm in his law. I know I'm safe. If, if you ever want to watch children who are not having a good time, watch children who are afraid. And if you, if you ever, like, see some of these areas that are really kind of desolate, or, and you watch children in those areas, they, they play, but their play has an edge to it. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not free. 
Or if you've ever seen, and, and I have, and it's a horrible thing, a, a child that you know has been abused, they play different. Because they're always afraid. Something's going to whack me out of nowhere. You know, it's, I don't understand why, but sometimes my dad hits me. Or whatever. And you watch those people, and you'll see they're not free at all. And, and you can tell them they're free, and they never feel free. They could be in, in you know, some kind of a, a kindergarten class where dad isn't even around. And they're just not the same as the other kids. They don't have a freedom there because they're always worried about something whacking them. The purpose of God's law is to protect you from things whacking you. It's a protection of a father who loves you. There may, may be some things that you're going through that are hard, but he's there with you, right? That's the purpose of it. He's there to protect you, and that's why he puts the laws in place because that's what dads do. Would you all please pray?